0: Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette.
1: I'm Maria Doulis from the CBC.
0: Thanks for joining us here today. Just a quick reminder as we're getting going, if you've missed any of our prior episodes, please find those at Gotham Gazette at CBC or, of course, on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And when you're on those podcast platforms, subscribe to What's the Data Point and uh, make sure you rate us, share the podcast with your friends, family, networks, and so on. Uh, We've had a lot of great episodes so far here as 2018 hurdles along, uh, and we have another good one here today. If you want to give us feedback, you can also find Maria and me on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax. Maria's at MariaDoulis. And for today's episode, we're very happy to be joined by Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson, who is the relatively new Deputy Mayor for Strategic Policy Initiatives under Mayor Bill de Blasio. Welcome. Hi. Thanks Glad for being be here. here. Uh, and before we get into our conversation with the Deputy Mayor, here's Maria with today's data point.
1: Today's data point is 2020, the year of the next US Census, a count of people living in the US that is used for determining representation in government as well as to accumulate a great deal of important data about the population. Census data will determine how many seats New York and other states are allocated in the House of Representatives, and the information gleaned during the census is used by government at all levels to make policy and funding decisions, including how to allocate billions of dollars in federal grants. For a variety of reasons, New York City faces unique challenges in getting everyone counted. Mayor Bill de Blasio has put Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson in charge of coordinating this effort, and we're happy to have him here to discuss the census and other strategic initiatives. Welcome. All
0: right. So, census—huge project, huge topic. That's only one piece of your portfolio. We'll, we'll touch on a few things, but before we get to any of that, will you give listeners—you're you're on the job two, three months now? About two months. Two months. Uh, so, again, congratulations and, and welcome back to, Thank uh, to you. New York City. Um, but will you give listeners and New Yorkers a little, uh, just a little background on who you are and
2: what you've done? Uh, for the last eighteen years, I've been a professor of urban planning and politics at MIT. Um, before that, I taught at Columbia University, uh, and uh, I was in a few different departments simultaneously, a political science, SEPA School of International Public Affairs, and the business school, and I also did consulting for the Citizens Budget Commission. Yes, a little uh, homecoming here. little tidbit um. there for our
1: trustees. And I
2: also was on the board of uh, was it, Citizens... Uh, Union. Uh And before that, I worked in the Dinkins administration. Um, I was his housing coordinator, and I was deputy general manager for operations and management at NYCHA. Uh, In the last 10 years, I've done a lot of projects. Uh, I did post-disaster planning work in New Orleans, Peru, and Haiti. For the last five years, I've worked in the Pacific coast of Colombia doing post-conflict capacity building and planning in the Pacific region. And for the last four years, I've been working on Central Brooklyn on a plan called Vital Brooklyn, which is a community health initiative, which is part of the whole Medicaid reform program uh, that the state has been operating. So I've been in New York a lot, uh-huh. um, but I've also been in other places.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Which, which gives you good perspective to come back to, to
0: New York uh, full time here and get... Back into the details of municipal government. Can I
2: say one thing? Sure. When the mayor offered me this job, I was teaching a course in the Amazon. I was working with community groups uh, in a city that had been devastated by an avalanche of boulders following uh, unprecedented weather and uh, with the Colombian army. Which of the, the Amazonian branch of the Colombian army which has changed its force mission to be protecting the Amazon as the number one thing they're about and all the soldiers are taking being trained in biodiversity and horticulture interesting, and all these kinds of things and the mayor called me and said have you ever thought about coming back into government and I said hell no I mean, I mean, <laughs> no, I' buy some pre-K seats <laughs> yeah. and he started laughing I said I'm in the Amazon I'm not thinking about New uh, York And he laughed and he said, okay, will you at least have dinner when you come back and we can talk? But, you know. Well, that's
1: interesting. So how were you (laughs) convinced to come back?
2: Uh, To be honest with you, I I really am worried about this country and the opportunity to serve and make a difference. I enjoyed my uh, life at MIT very much. The, the work I enjoyed it, but I really felt like everybody who can do something ought to do whatever they can do, and so the mayor was offering opportunity to really make a difference and I never really thought of myself as a patriot per se i just but I really feel that 's what it is i I really felt like I have to do something to for the service. country yeah,
0: and was that just heightened by the uh, election results, which is something that spurred a lot of people into action, or was that, it was that different? President, I'm referring to presidential election results, of course.
2: Well, I was pretty active with the Obama administration too, but I think with uh, Trump's election and the divisiveness and division and narrow-mindedness that I believe is prevailing in Washington, it was even more important. And I know the mayor, I know what he wants to do, I know where he's coming from, so I felt like here's an opportunity to make a difference.
0: How do you capture that? How do you capture you know what the mayor wants to do? What what does that mean to you? I mean, ha, someone who who isn't familiar with Bill De Blasio, how do you explain it to them? What is he after?
2: As long the mayor's been the same as long as I've known him, he has Which always is from the Dinkins, right? Era. Even from the beginning of the Dinkins era, if not before, and. We all started out together. Like, How do we actually make change and for people who are suffering? That's really what it's about. And how do we make government accountable and be a tool to help people who are suffering? And he's the same person. And so the, all these different
0: things that you outlined that you've done and been involved with and consulted on and, and helped run... What does that mean your skill set is? I mean, why did he want you to come back into municipal service? How do you describe what you're most good at?
2: I wrote a book about the Dinkins experience and about black mayors. And uh, the point of the book was really to explain the problematic of trying to use City Hall to change policies on behalf of low-income people when there are all kinds of entrenched interest that basically push in the other direction and how do you do that and I would say my skill set is really combining you know some technical ability in the areas of planning a little bit in development with some understanding of how do you actually put together coalitions that can make change and I actually think one without the other doesn't work making change through government requires some understanding of the substantive policy issues and some understanding of what it actually takes, who needs to be around a table in a given policy arena in order to really move the ball.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think we could say in some ways that, you know, in your position, what you have to do is kind of operationalize in some ways some of the key tenants of this progressive philosophy, right? Through these, what we're, the mayor's calling strategic initiatives. So in the first term, there was pre-K, I think the housing plan. What else am I missing?
0: MWBE expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, Some work with the Thrive NYC initiative.
1: So that, I think, will continue to fall under your portfolio. Now, do you have other big ticket items like this that you were working on in this term?
2: Let me backtrack a little bit Mm -hmm. and then come to that. So 80% of American cities are majority of color now. And if you look at young white people in cities, 80% of them voted for Obama twice. If you put those two facts together, it was a coalition that elected Bill de Blasio. People of color as young white folks, progressives. That coalition can be replicated across the country. And I think that's the coalition that will turn the tide in this country. And it's very promising. And it's never happened before. Turn the tide on a... a urban policy level? Turn the tide in American politics and governance, period. Because a majority of people in America now live in cities. Mm -hmm. And 80% of GDP is now in cities. Mm -hmm. I just think that's where things are moving. That's the future. Mm -hmm. It's never happened before. A majority of whites have never voted for a Democrat for president since the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And Lyndon Johnson said, predicted this, and he was right. We're seeing the emergence of something new and different. That also was the Obama coalition, but it's really an urban coalition. So now de Blasio's in office. The challenge is kind of what you said. How do we actually show and demonstrate what a difference it makes when people come together in this new way? And we actually have to show that. For me, that's the broad perspective that I have. Uh, In terms of specifics, I particularly want to drill down beyond the things you mentioned, into workforce, into creating a vision of where the economy is going and then aligning our business development, which is under me small business development and NWBE and workforce programs to be in alignment with where things are going. And where I think things are going, I think we're on the verge of three major changes in the city, but also in the country that are going to be the most dramatic changes in the history of this country. One is due to climate change, and it's not in the press every day, but it's happening. And if our species is gonna survive, we're gonna have to adjust and adapt and change in very fundamental ways, starting now. And I do think humans will adapt and change, and it's gonna happen, but that's gonna be profound. Second is the digital revolution. We're not at the end of it, we're at the beginning of it. It's gonna spread through every sector Of the economy. Artificial intelligence is going to transform how we manage traffic. It's going to transform our daily lives. Digital manufacturing is going to change where things are made. It's not all going to come from China. We're going to see a lot more local manufacturing. It's going to be profoundly revolutionary. And the third thing is the demographic change I just mentioned. And you put those things together, we're at a dynamic and explosive period. So how do we align our education, and our training programs. So we're training young folks for the jobs of the future, which are going to involve how do we make New York green, which are going to involve what is the new urban manufacturing look like and what are the skill sets. Some folks say there are going to be two kinds of jobs in the future. One, where you tell computers and robots what to do? The other is where robots and computers tell you what to do. (laughs) Uh How do we move our young folks so they're telling computers and robots what to do? Right and not on the bottom end of mm. the income spectrum. So to me, those are exciting challenges, and that's what we're working on. What are the partnerships that we need with academia, with industry, et cetera, so that we can move forward in these new directions?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, those are massive shifts, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, they're so large that it's kind of hard to predict how they unfold. I mean you know the climate change stuff sort of happens in fits and starts. We have like a hurricane Sandy and then everybody freaks out and we're all trying to say well how could we have been prepared for this and what do we need to do for the next Sandy but the next storm may be a little different um which is not to say that climate change is a real ongoing thing happening all the time right um the digital stuff will sort of is picking up pace and accelerating um but it's hard to predict in advance how that unfolds. So in such like an uncertain environment, how do you, how do you sort of get organized to start to, to address and attack those things?
2: Well, I, I think you start with the things that we do know. Um, we do know that we are wasting a lot of carbon due to energy inefficiency in our building stock. And so we have almost a million buildings in New York, very few of which have been retrofitted for energy efficiency. And we could save maybe 40% of our annual energy bill, as well as reduce carbon, about one-third of carbon of buildings. We could dramatically bring that down through retrofitting. And that would create jobs for huge numbers of young folks, you know, green architects, green designers, green engineers, green construction workers, and so forth. So why aren't we doing that? That's something we know. We know that the biggest danger in New York is probably heat in Manhattan, My own view is, and we know there are going to be rising oceans. That we know. My own view is that if your problem is heat, you don't build walls to keep the ocean out. You figure out ways to bring the water in. Does that mean Manhattan becomes Venice? Maybe. But that's where we need to be really planning and digging into. And the way we think about systems, we have to learn how to break out of those old molds of thinking for survival. That we know. So there are many unknowns, but there are some profound knowns that we're not dealing with right now. So to make
0: this a little more concrete on workforce development, let's say, and and the green jobs that you just referred to, the mayor has announced some plans around retrofitting and around requiring even private owners to modernize and and change the emissions standards at their buildings. Um, And the city has workforce development programs. So what do you do? What do you... How are you now coming into some policies that have already been announced, some programs that are in place? How do you, you know, what's your sort of day-to-day in terms of how you then take those pieces and move forward?
2: I think we have to figure out how to bring all the relevant parties to the table to scale up and really move the ball on these issues. Part of it, I think, is getting labor to see the opportunity and also to be far more inclusive in their outreach and training. Part of it is enabling our financial industry to actually understand retrofits, understand, you know, right now I think funders are pretty confused when you present to them a geothermal boiler system and solar panels on top and sensors that move air from the sunny side to the shady side of the building in the wintertime and vice versa in the summertime. And it's a multifamily building with individual apartments, but the landlord is somebody else. And they don't even know what... And you can... Or say you have a co-generator that makes electricity. You can sell energy back to the grid. They don't even know what department to put it in. If you're selling energy to the grid, is that the small business department? If it's landlord, is it your real estate department? And then how do you figure out what the risk is or what the savings are when you have this combination of devices in a building? They don't even know. And so one thing we have to do, I think we can do in government, is actually assemble the data and enable banks and other financiers to construct systems so that a loan officer can just say, oh, here's your building, here's how much sunlight, here's the kind of skin it has. Here are the kind of devices you have. Here's the risk. Here's the save. Here's what you will save on your energy bill. Boom. Here's your loan. Here's your interest rate, whatever. We can facilitate that. We can help the building trades understand what I call the $70,000 a year janitor opportunity. Right now, there's very little standardization when you introduce these kinds of systems and buildings on the software. They're all coordinated via software, but Johnson Controls has one software. Honeywell has another. Siemens has another. General Electric has another. And so when you go to find someone to fix a system that's broken, it takes months because you need someone who is trained on one kind of software and you're building, you know, and it's hard to find those kinds of people. It's as if we went in to plug a light into a wall And every room we went into had a different kind of system, different kind of plug to plug into the wall. You know, Mm. that's what we have now. And so the city can actually create, because we're so big, we can actually standardize what are the kinds of softwares, protocols that everyone needs to use, you know, in their energy-efficient system. That kind of thing is enabling. Then a union can train people to a standard and people will pay a lot of money for folks who know how to maintain these systems because they save an incredible amount of money. Then we can talk about who gets the savings, how much goes to tenants, how much goes to landlords, how much goes to, you know, the general welfare for other things, et cetera. We can get to that. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, we're working on now um, and will need to do in order to, like, move the ball. It sounds
0: Uh, also like almost any commissioner in the city, other deputy mayors, I mean you're sort of talking about projects that include, could include almost everybody right? Is that part of your skill set? Is, you know, you are someone who comes into government not thinking about some of the typical silos that exist? Uh, How's that been in your first two months? Is that a challenge coming back into city bureaucracy which we know I've heard even the mayor rail about often.
2: It's definitely a challenge. It's always been a challenge. That's a lot of what I've been doing in my prior life here before coming here is trying to break through those silos. Um, If you look at health, we pay an enormous amount of money due to huge health disparities in places like central Brooklyn and the Bronx. And one, 50% of all residents of Brooklyn are on Medicaid, and we basically lack a preventative primary care system in central Brooklyn, like we do in the Bronx, and as a result, people don't get treated or diagnosed for things like hypertension or diabetes and other kinds of chronic diseases that, and people show up in an emergency room when they're really, really sick, and it's very, very expensive to treat people, but if they had been under medication or under treatment early on we could avoid a lot of those costs and when you look at you know what leads to coronary heart disease of which there's a lot of in these places it's stress mainly due to poverty and unemployment that's number one stress due to lack of stable housing stress you know and then there's bad food habits expensive to get healthy food and lack of access in many places to green and healthy food. And addressing something like our exorbitant expenses in healthcare ultimately means keeping people out of hospitals, but that means really addressing unemployment, really addressing housing, and then creating ways, accounting systems, that enable us to actually reward folks and the actors who actually contribute to reducing the health disparities. An example, I worked in a project in the Bronx with a group called Bronx Community Development Initiative called the uh, Healthy Buildings Project. We used to call it the Sick Buildings Project. But we got data from Montefiore Hospital on repeat asthma cases. People keep coming back. It turns out the vast majority of these cases were from just 50 buildings, 50 buildings. In those buildings, there was mold, there are rodents, there are roaches. All these things contribute to asthma. So we worked to construct a program on retrofitting those buildings for asthma. so that people What
1: specifically does that mean?
2: Taking out the mold, okay. dealing with the rodents, and so forth. But we said if we're going to tear up the buildings to take out mold, why not do an energy retrofit at the same time? And then the savings in energy can help pay for the cost of the asthma retrofit and ultimately that means fewer repeat asthma cases going into the hospital and it saves us on the healthcare side that takes bringing together a bunch of different city departments and state and funding streams and figuring out the financing which is all complicated but that's the kind of thing we need to do in order to really address the health disparity crisis. And the siloed approach is not very strategic. It's not very smart. In terms of unemployment, we're working on leveraging the city's massive procurement budget, the massive procurement budget of hospitals, to help create jobs locally. So one of the things we're really interested in is maybe a furniture factory to make hospital furniture. And the hospitals are really interested in that. Mm-hmm. They buy a lot of furniture, sure. as do our schools. Mm-hmm. Why not make it locally? By the way, why not have a company that's locally owned or worker-owned or co-op so it doesn't move? We're exploring that as well, leveraging the city's massive procurement, which can be a real driver for economic development and job creation. That has a health outcome um, at the end of the day.
1: It strikes me listening to what you're saying, though, that before – you can even make these connections. You need a vehicle for sort of sitting there and reviewing the data and getting people in the room. And so how do you, how do you create that mechanism or that vehicle or how do you sort of do the shift to say like, hey, we're going to you know, come together on a regular basis to, to explore these avenues and make these connections?
2: Interesting. You, people, when they talk about innovation, they mainly, often they talk about firms innovating, or maybe people in laboratories innovating, they don't think often about government innovating. No. I think for innovation to really work, to really happen, it has to be innovation in the private sector, in business, innovation in civil society, innovation in government simultaneously. Everybody has to innovate. And government has great convening power. Government democracy really is for problem-solving. Bringing people together to solve problems, so I think that's kind of what I'm pushing. That uh, and we those actually procurement
0: dollars are good for convening <laughs> yes. as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes.
2: we actually <laughs> use government's convening power to to engage the private sector, engage civil society to do things differently.
0: You have to, and we we should go to the census in, in a minute. But oh yes, you have to, <laughs> um, and, and maybe a couple other your projects, um, but. You have to um, have some uh, some ability, some some way of taking on risk when you when you innovate. And I think that's one of the reasons that government doesn't necessarily innovate that much, is because there can be a lot of risk around innovating and programs that you might have to scrap or or you know totally change. And the private sector seems to be more nimble in doing that. Um, is that something? that you see as a mission coming in to convince this mayor to be a little less risk averse or to be more, you know, to be open, to be more creative, second term, bring in, you know, a deputy mayor who's been doing things all over the world and say, yeah, let's be creative. Let's take some risks.
2: I don't think the mayor is risk averse. I don't think the mayor had any idea 4K would work when he started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was just a bold thing. And Thrive, the mental health initiative, was a bold thing. I don't think the mayor is risk-averse, really. I also don't think government's role is to be risk-averse. I think the private sector is far more risk-averse than government is. I came from 18 years at MIT. I got to tell you, computers and the Internet came from 20-year consistent funding from government, which took the risk out of it. You could screw up a thousand times, right. which they did screw up a thousand times. But government said it's real strategic for us to develop these systems. No venture capitalist would have put that money in over a twenty-year period, not knowing what's going to happen. You know, government's role is exactly to socialize risk, exactly to say here's something that's important for us as a city or us as a country to do, and so we're going to invest in that and. You know, AI is a good example. In my opinion, the government should be establishing the infrastructure for AI. We're going to have smart cars soon, which are going to be guided by traffic managers who exist in a cloud, who will be AI traffic managers. That infrastructure ought to be designed and owned by government, because if it's owned by a private company, they're going to own everything. Mm -hmm. Imagine if all the roads and bridges were owned by a private company then they could charge rents that would just be crazy. And it would stifle all kinds of development in a bunch of other ways. So the same with AI. I think government ought to be in front of that infrastructure, take a risk, establish it, and enable all kinds of new startups and other kinds of things to take advantage of that and flourish. I really think that's our role.
1: So I want to just touch on UPK for a second because, actually, I think we we gave the rollout of UPK an award, the Innovation Prize, because it was an an example of what we're talking about, which is all these agencies coming together, integrating data that had never sort of talked to each other before, and in a very, very short time period successfully rolling out this really transformative new program in the city, right? Right? So it's a beautiful example of that, and it was very well executed. My question on that, since it's in your portfolio is sort of what are the plans to um you know as we think about expanding this to three k what are the plans one to ensure that the programming is really high quality right because the research shows if you're going to do this, you have to make sure that it's high quality programming and then two, you know keeping the eye since you know New York is so large i mean the you know there's so much research that happens on education here because you have such robust numbers right keeping the eye on the long term and saying, hey, we're going to track these kids and evaluate and have something to say in the long term, you know, when they graduate high school about how the outcomes are different and how they've changed thanks to this pre-K program to demonstrate to taxpayers that these investments have really been worth it?
2: Well, I mean, I think that you just hit it. The school's chancellor is very focused on the quality of the 3K experience and uh, we've been to several schools together. I'm really interested in that too. And I'm interested in, and he's interested, in getting kids exposed as early as possible on the things we've been talking about before. Uh, nature, which is biology, ecology, tech, object learning, and project-based experiential learning. Um, those are things that you know are being pushed right now through the 3K and 4K uh, programs. And we are bringing in experts from both CUNY and other places, MIT, and others who are working on pre-K through cradle-to-grave kinds of educational um, programs and experience. Because as our economy shifts, retraining, learning how to learn is going to be a critical skill. Jobs are – it's not going to be like it has been in the past. You start a job with Procter and Gamble, and then after 30 years you get a gold watch. You know, yeah, right. it's, yeah, Things are going to transition like honor, all yeah. the time, and people are going to have to know how to shift. And, and that has to just be a culture change in how we think about education and training. And it has to start early. And Richard Carranza is right there. It's interesting because
0: very early on in this conversation, one of the first places my mind jumped is we have to rethink – Our education system and that's well beyond what's happening in 3k and pre-k but you know uh, middle school high school you know the experiential learning often goes away towards the end of elementary school and there's we're
2: trying to redesign the summer youth programs so that they're actually connected to the school experience during the year so that they're actually connected to what are going to be the growth areas in the economy and so forth Mm -hmm. you know for example there's an immense investment now in DNA research. Future prescription drugs are going to be for your particular individual DNA. And the druggist is going to actually construct the medicine on the spot for your DNA. And it requires skills in what's called computational biology. Mm-hmm. That's the future. So, walking backwards, how do we begin to develop and train young people for what's coming? And not for what's going to actually disappear in five years. And so we're trying to say, how can we integrate the summer youth job experience with computational biology exposures, as an example? You know, how do we actually teach kids about water through the summer program? And then that connects to the curriculum during the school year. And all of that is really, how do we retrain teachers to, you know, take advantage of of these new kinds of multimedia tools and partnerships that are available and coming online. Yeah. It's all about that. So Richard Carranza and I are bonding uh-huh. around these things um, because we do have to build a different kind of system and a more integrated system. So we're going to get to the census in one minute, okay?
0: And we're in our last – we're going to get to it in one minute, and we're going to take a a few minutes on it. Um, But obviously, maybe we'll have another chance to talk to you as the census efforts are further ramping up. Um, But you just used the word integrate a couple times in a different sense. And I have to ask you, since you mentioned Chancellor Carranza and workforce development and education – what are your thoughts on you know the specialized high school uh, questions? It seems to me, a that in many cases these specialized high schools are are themselves sort of relics in the way that they do things. Just the the you know the way that the cl- classes are often structured. From what I know from the outside, and I know they're not all the same, um, but at the same time. The, you know, the questions around opportunity at them and the opportunity they present people can't be ignored and, and that has led to these recent announcements of efforts to integrate.
2: So I'm not an expert on uh, Stuyvesant or um, Bronx Science or others, but I can speak from my own experience. And I went to a public school for 11 years, um, elementary and then high school. And then uh, my senior year, I went to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, because I applied to get out of my high school when I was 15. I said, they don't want me to go to college. And I applied to the University of Pennsylvania, and the University of Pennsylvania drove me to New England to visit Exeter and Andover and St. Paul's. I'd never heard of these places. When I started at Exeter, um, uh, and by the way, two teachers in in my high school cursed me out when I got accepted at Exeter. Who do you think you are? You're not smart enough to go there. You're just going there because you're black. It's affirmative action. That's what they said to me. Teachers. Teachers. This is where, sorry? What in, area? Pennsylvania. in Pennsylvania. I don't want to. Yeah, no, no. We don't have to name um, it. I go to Exeter. I t- took my SATs in the 11th grade before I left the public school. I went to Exeter, took the SATs, I believe, in November. I hadn't been there that long, but a couple of months. They almost doubled. <laughs> I'm the same. I was the same kid they doubled because I had had two months of very focused, superior, really great education. But also, I had been encouraged to think of myself differently, right, while I was there. And it just made a huge difference. And so, how many other kids are there like that, like me? I would not have passed that test, you know, early on to get into a Stuyvesant, I would not have. Not because I wasn't capable. So I can say that. The second thing I would say is every year for the last 18 years, I've read hundreds of college applications, undergraduate and graduate, for the most selective college in the United States. And we decided to move away from looking at test scores narrowly because they do not predict performance. They... At the extremes they do. If someone is really bad at math or, or some, you see that and you just say, well, this student would not have a good experience here in calculus, too, at MIT. <laughs> you know? However, what really does predict performance are things that don't show up in those tests, such as drive. Are, are students persistent? Are they able to overcome difficulties? Because I don't care who you are, you're going to have difficulty at MIT. Everybody has difficulty, so how do you measure that? How do you measure people's ability to interact with one another, whether it's in a lab or in a business? That's critical, we've decided. So much so that MIT, Harvard, Stanford, University of Michigan, many other of these schools created something called edX, and then at MIT we we have MITx, and every year MIT offers courses to actually millions of people now in different subjects, free, all over the world. It's online, you take the course, then you're evaluated, you get a grade. The purpose is so we can actually find students who are in a school in India in a small village where they don't even have science. But taking these online courses, we see, wow, here's somebody with a lot of drive, a lot of smarts. They're really good. And two years ago, MIT started recruiting students from these online programs, from India, from all over the world, getting full scholarships. You know why? Because they're the best students. And we don't want where you go to high school or where you go to junior high school to limit who, you know, potential. Because we want the very best. Because we want the very best, we moved away from the test. We are we move beyond getting beyond these barriers and limits. That's the thrust that I see behind the efforts that Kananza and them is doing. It's not to limit opportunity. It's not to lower quality. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. We don't have to, we don't have yeah, time we're to yeah. We're gonna have yeah, just a separate, separate have, episode. Yeah. Half, <laughs> sure. We'll leave
0: that, that there. Even though that that could head us. So give us yeah Yeah, we got a few minutes left. Let's give talk a, about the census. It's yeah, critically
1: sure. important. You're gonna sort of run the city's ability to get organized to to meet the challenge here. There are, as we said at the top of the program, kind of unique challenges in New York City. Why don't you explain a little bit about that and then say, you know, how you're thinking about overcoming them?
2: Sure. Well for for every census, there's always a problem in New York. Um because we're <laughs> so large, we're so diverse, we have so many different folks who speak so many different languages, and then we have some folks who are distrustful of government, period. Getting an accurate count in New York has always been a challenge. It's much more difficult this time because the federal government is putting a question about citizenship on the census, and in this climate where there are uh, people, there was something in the paper today about a pizza delivery person you know, being picked up by ICE delivering pizza in Brooklyn because someone called them in. There's a climate of fear, right. There's a climate of fear that's in the city and uh, particularly affecting immigrant communities and that could easily lead to an undercount. There's a climate of fear. So our outreach has to be even greater than usual this time. And so if we don't include everyone, then the city stands to lose federal funding, the city stands to lose representation in Congress. I think the city and the government stands to lose something even greater, which is basic confidence in government. If we can't count on government to even count who's here, and to be honest and truthful, I think that's very dangerous. And I'm saying that as someone who's spent five years, the last five years working in Colombia, where there is distrust in government and... You see what happens. I see what happens. Mm -hmm. I I think it's dangerous to have people lose basic faith and confidence in government because then when you have a crisis, people don't respond to government, and that's not good. So on that,
0: though, people in New York, using this example of this pizza delivery uh, situation that leads to, to ICE being called, people in New York, including the mayor, including the governor, are regularly saying that we can't trust the Trump administration and the federal government, but saying trust the city government, trust the state government. With something like the census, how do you possibly balance those
2: two things? Well, there are federal laws uh, that can put people uh, in jail for disclosing information, individual information related to the census. And if the city feels, if we feel that there really is a danger... We will say that to people. Right now, the bigger danger, in our opinion, is actually for people not to fill it out. Because the whole intent of having a citizenship question is really to drive people underground, um, to have people not show up. I think the most dangerous thing for immigrants is to be isolated. And we need to do the exact opposite. We need to embrace, lift up, surround, not isolate. Do you know how you're going to begin to operationalize that yeah. So we are actually uh, working with uh, the Census Bureau uh, on outreach, and the Census Bureau really wants to have an accurate count. And we are hiring internally to uh, do outreach. We're going to be working across all of our agencies uh, to do outreach. We're, going, we're building a staff. We're, we'll have a census director. We plan to have a massive uh, campaign sustained. Starting this summer and then sustained to really encourage people to sign up. We we've talked about immigrants, but another group that traditionally has been reticent and hesitant around filling up the census actually are African Americans, yeah. and so low-income African Americans in particular. So we also plan to really reach out in NYCHA, we really in African American communities and encourage people to stand up. And what I say is, two hundred years ago in Brooklyn, and in New York, um, there was a Law passed the Fugitive Slave Act, in which white Americans were encouraged to turn in runaway slaves or people who helped runaway slaves to turn them in. And African Americans were forced underground. And as you know, when the country was founded, there was a, you're a historian. There was a three-fifths clause. You know, African Americans were counted as three-fifths of a person. The intent of this census is to have another three-fifths. And for African Americans, you know, we're saying a lot of New Yorkers stood up and fought that Future to Slave Act back then. Now let's stand up and fight that attempt again and draw on our own history. We know what it's like to be driven underground. So let's all come together and make sure that doesn't happen. And for folks who come from Eastern Europe or Jews who went through the World War II experience, we know what it's like to be isolated, you know, and what that can lead to. Let's not do that. New York has always stood for something different. And so let's have that fight. Sounds like it's
0: going to be a lot more than just an operational uh, effort. It's going to be a real public
2: rallying cry. Absolutely. as part of our Democracy NYC initiative, and we view it as part of fighting to maintain and strengthen our democracy.
0: Speaking of that, Democracy, NYC, that's a whole 10-point plan, the mayor outlined, that's your portfolio. But we're really glad um, that we had the chance in this conversation to, you know, just really get a feel for how you think and how you're thinking about your new position. That obviously is essential to how the administration is running the city and where it's heading. Um, So we'll have to dig into more specifics another time. Uh, but. Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson, thank you very much for joining
2: us. It was a great pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And happy Brooklyn Queens Day. Bye.